Good morning, crowd family, and happy, happy Sunday. I'm glad you can join us today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 is today's text. We're now in part 2 of our series, Doctrine and Devotion. Again, that's Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Now, before we dive into today's text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And Paul opens his letter to Titus by identifying himself as a servant, as a bondservant of God, one who is completely and permanently surrendered to the will and authority of God. Now, Paul is not only a servant, but also an apostle, a sent one, sent out as a representative of heaven and a representative of King Jesus. And you see, Paul understood that his position as a servant of God and an apostle was in harmony, this is now, in harmony with the faith of God's Elect, And this is what we call the doctrine, what we Christians in common believe together. There is a common belief, a common body of doctrine. This is the common faith. Now remember, Paul is emphasizing the importance of truth, uh, the importance of sound doctrine. And what he does, he encourages the elect as he links doctrine with duty, that, that truth, that doctrine always leads to godliness, always leads to a life devoted to godliness. That truth, listen now, that truth should have an effect on how we live. Now remember, salvation can never, never be separated from sanctification. What we believe determines how we behave, and our behavior is to reflect the character of God. Then Paul says we can live with a confident expectation, I love this, expectation and anticipation of the hope, remember that word, hope, of eternal life because it rests on the promise of God. And that it not only rests on the promise of God, but that it also is grounded in God himself who not only does not lie, but cannot lie because of his perfect and holy character. In verse 3, Paul understood that preaching was entrusted to him. It was given to him as a, as a stewardship, as a trust by the command of God our Savior. And that, that preaching is a way that God's eternal work meets people today. It's the way, listen now, God's word is made evident. In other words, manifested, made visible. And Paul's responsibility, like ours, is to get the message out. Then in verse 4, Paul addresses Titus, and I love the way that he addresses Titus. He says, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Love that. My true son in our common faith. Paul and Titus had a father-son relationship because of their common faith. Now remember, in the Greek, the word common is the word koinos. Koinos, and it refers to what is held in common with others. And so by using this term, Paul reminds us of that which we hold in common with all believers, regardless of nationality or status. It's, it's a common faith, not an isolated one. And, and you see, Paul was for the church and, and the community of all believers. And, and there's a body of truth, of doctrine that belongs to us collectively as Christians. And then Paul, what he does, he ends verse 4 with grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. So what Paul does, Paul gets right into the message of the gospel because grace is the source of salvation and peace is the result of salvation. Now this now brings us to 
today's text. The title of my message today is Godly Leadership. Everyone say that, Godly Leadership. I'm going to share with you three points from the text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Number one is the commission. Write that down. Say that. Say the commission. The commission. And let's look at verse 5a. The commission, verse 5a. Paul writes, the reason I left you in Crete. So after spending some time on the island of Crete, Paul moved on to preach in other cities. But because there was so much work still to be done in Crete, he left Titus behind. Now, now, now we know that Paul wrote this letter, right? Paul wrote this letter, and he wrote it to Titus. But what was the reason? What was the reason for writing this letter? Well, let's read on. Well, let's go back to verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you, now here's a reason, here's a reason he was commissioned. Titus was commissioned to do two things. And the first thing is this, was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. Did you get that? Was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. So he commissioned Titus to set in order to straighten out what was left unfinished. The word set in order or straighten out in the Greek is epide orthuo, from which we get the words orthodontist or orthopedist. And it literally means to set right, to set in order, to complete unfinished reforms. It was used by medical writers to describe the setting of broken limbs or straightening crooked ones. Now, now just like a doctor Titus was to set straight the things that were still unfinished. They were crooked things, crooked things that had to be set straight among the congregations of Crete. Now, the word unfinished shows, shows us that Paul was concerned about the lack of leadership structure in the local churches. Now, there's a lesson, and here's the lesson. And the lesson is this. There are things around us and things in us that are unfinished. I'm going to say it again. There are things around us and things in us that are unfinished. Let me ask you this. What are the things that we need to complete in our lives? Huh? What are the things that you and I that we need to complete in our lives? See, the truth is this. Some of you never finish what you started. And you're really, really good, very good at starting things but never finish them. Listen, I want to tell you this. There is unfinished work here at Cry Out Christian Fellowship, and we have work to do, lots of work to do, ministries to serve in, people to reach, lives to touch. There's always something, always something to do for the kingdom of God. We have work to do. Look at verse 5b, and this is the second thing that Titus was commissioned to do. He says, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he's to do this in every town, every city, friends. And by the, by the way, Crete had a hundred different cities, which shows how the gospel had spread there in that island. Now, the New Testament uses three key words that help us or help paint a picture of the godly men who lead the church. Now, Dan, Dan spoke about this in his message, The Role of the Pastor, and he did a, an amazing job doing that. So you're going to hear this again. So there's, first of all, elder, say elder, which is the Greek word presbyteros, from which we get Presbyterian. And it refers to one who is mature 
and models the faith. And you'll find that in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Acts 20, verse 17. 1 Timothy 5, 17. 1 Timothy 5, 17. And 1 Peter 5, 1. 1 Peter 5, 1. Then you have overseer or bishop. Same word, same, same meaning, overseer, bishop, which is the word episkopos, from which we get episcopal. And it means to oversee or care for, and you find that in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Acts 20, verse 28, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1, and here in our text, Titus 1, 7, chapter 1, verse 7, Philippians 1, 1, Philippians 1, 1, and 1 Peter 5, 2, 1 Peter 5, 2. Then you have pastor. So there's elder, overseer, slash bishop, and pastor, which is the Greek word, pastor, which is the Greek word, poimen, poimen, which means to shepherd, or, or one who cares for the needs of others. And you find that in Acts 20, verse 28, Acts 20, 28, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, Ephesians 4, 13, and 1 Peter 5, 2, 1 Peter 5, 2. These, these words, these three words are often used interchangeably, especially elder and overseer. Now, among other responsibilities, the Bible lists six primary tasks. So I want you to follow me here. There's, first of all, and here we go. The first task is shepherd the sheep. Shepherd the sheep. And you find that in 1 Peter 5.2. 1 Peter 5.2. Then there's model Christian maturity. Model Christian maturity. You find that in 1 Peter 5.3. 1 Peter 5.3. Then you have feed the flock. Feed the flock. 1 Timothy 5.17. 1 Timothy 5.17. Then you have refute the rebellious. Refute the rebellious. And we'll see that in verse 9 of today's text. Okay, verse 9. That's in today's text. And then you have manage church matters. Manage church matters. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 5. And then intercede for the sick. Intercede for the sick. In James 5.14. So these are, are the six primary tasks of the elder, overseer, or pastor. Got it? Shepherd the sheep, model Christian maturity, feed the flock, refute the rebellious, manage the church, manage church matters, and intercede for the sick. So Titus was commissioned to straighten out what was unfinished and to appoint elders in every city. If you got it, say got it. Number two is this. The characteristics, write that down. The characteristics. Here we see the characteristic qualities of a godly leader. I'm going to say that again. Here we see the characteristic qualities of a godly leader. And you will notice, friends, as we go through this list, that most of the qualifications involve character. Not a specific skill, talent, or giftedness. It's character. And you see, this list really covers who elders are, not so much what they do. And this list is more a character description and less of a job description. And Paul, listen, Paul is more concerned about the man's character than he is about what the man can do. And it was Titus's job, Titus's commission, to look for men of the kind of character Paul describes in the following verses and to appoint them as elders in the congregations. You see, God has specific character qualifications for leaders in the church. Now, that being said, leaders should not be chosen just because 
they're volunteers or because they desire the position or because they're eloquent or because they give a lot of money or because they, they went to seminary or because they have natural or spiritual gifts or even because they are natural leaders. They should be chosen because they match the character qualifications listed here in our text. Paul didn't say to Titus, find me the most gifted guys. He didn't say that. Paul focuses on character. Now, what qualifies a man for spiritual leadership is godly character. And godly character is established according to the clear criteria Paul will list here in the verse. Now, I want you to, now I need to say this, and I want to say this. This is not a rigid list which demands perfection in all areas. Got it? It's not a rigid list which demands perfection in all areas. Now, perhaps some of you are are already checking out. You're checking out, and you're saying, what good is this message for me? Because you're not an elder, a bishop, overseer, pastor, nor do you have the desire to be one. Listen, these character qualifications or qualities are valuable for every single believer, not just for those who seek to attain a position of leadership. Listen, they are clear indicators. These character qualifications are clear indicators, or we can call them measuring guides of godly character and spiritual maturity. They can give a true measure of a believer. So this message is for you, okay? Now, let's look at the list, and here we see the family character qualifications, the family character qualifications. Look at verse 6 with me. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless. Now, I want to say this. This doesn't mean flawless or faultless. In fact, the Greek word uh, amomos, amomos means without blame, and it has to do with unquestioned integrity. Got it? Unquestioned integrity. It also means nothing to take hold upon Nothing to take hold upon. In other words, there must be nothing in the life of the leader that others can take hold of and attack his life or the church that he represents. This is a man who lives a righteous life that can be seen as righteous. Therefore, no one can stand up and rightfully accuse him of grievous sin or of practicing sin. Now, now listen. Blameless doesn't mean that no one brings an accusation against the elder. But the accusations against the elder are not right. They're not fair. They're not uh, valid. In other words, the accusations don't stick. Now, I want you to notice that this is not an optional quality for the elder. The text says an elder must, must, say that, must be blameless. Let's read on. Then he writes, the husband of but one wife. The husband of but one wife. The Greek phrase literally reads this way, a one-woman man. Write that down, a one-woman man. The interpretation is that a man must remain faithful and true to his wife. Now, this was important in Crete because of the rampant immorality that pervaded the island. In fact, friends, in the Roman world, it was common for wealthy men to have sexual relations with their servants in their home, with prostitutes 
at the pagan temple and with their wife. And what Paul is saying, Paul is saying that this is unacceptable for the elder. He must be completely committed to his wife in every single way. He's a one-woman man. He's a one-woman man. That the person that he's married to is the love of his life. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have eyes for other women but his wife. He doesn't flirt with other women. He's not a player. Got it? He's not a player. He's not out doing hanky-panky with other women. He is completely committed to his wife. His romantic attention and affection and focus is only on his wife and on her only. Got it? Got it? Now I want to say this. It doesn't mean that a leader must be married. I'm going to say it again. It doesn't mean that a leader must be married. If that were the case, then both Jesus and Paul would be disqualified from leadership. And nor is, the, is it the idea that a leader could never remarry if his wife has, had passed away or if he were biblically divorced. Now, I want to make two additional points related to this qualification. First, the teaching of Scripture, I'm talking about the Bible, okay? The teaching of Scripture, the Bible, is clear that elders and pastors are to be men. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Paul uses the masculine pronoun throughout this list, and he says that elders are to be husbands. Got it? The second thing is this. God's standard is one man and one woman for life in a monogamous, monogamous marriage. Now, if you're safe, say amen. We must take a stand for the sanctity, sanctity of marriage. Now, some say that this is a political issue. Therefore, we should stay away from it in the church. I totally disagree. It's a biblical and moral issue that must be communicated and protected by the church. If you got it, say got it. So let's read on. A man whose children, he says, believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So an elder must be above reproach in marriage and also in his parenting. So he must, he must be actively involved in the faith development of his children. Now I want you to listen. What Paul has in mind here as he's writing this about children, when he uses the word or using the word children, he's referring to little children, to young children, not adult children. He's writing from his own frame of reference as a Jewish man. So the leader must have raised his children well. That's what it's saying. He must have raised his children well. Now I want you to follow me here. They, they've seen his children. They've seen his life and they know his walk with God, that it's real. That his walk with God is real. And it's affected the way they lived and in turn, friends, responded to the gospel and have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, I want to say this. There are no perfect children. No perfect children. And we must allow them to process their faith as they discover their place in God's family. Now, having said that, the true training ground for an elder is in the home. I'm going to say that again. The true training ground, training ground for the elder is in the home. 
Now, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he links the managing of children with the managing of the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes this, 1 Timothy 3, 5, If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? You see, his ability to lead the family of God must be first demonstrated by his ability to lead his own children. John Corson said this, Pastor John Corson, True ministry may one day extend beyond your family, but not before it is established within your family. I love that. We now come to the family of God character qualifications. The family of God character qualifications. Look at verse 7. Since an overseer, bishop, is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Now, here Paul introduces the concept of being a steward. To be entrusted refers to stewardship. Say stewardship. Now, now since the overseer, since the elder, the pastor is entrusted, is a steward of God's work, he must see himself not as the owner of the church, but a steward of the church, one who is entrusted with the, the spiritual nourishment, growth, and behavior of the family of God. Now notice, Paul repeats the word blameless again, right? And what he's saying is that the leader entrusted with God's work has unquestioned integrity. That's what he's saying. Now listen, Cry Out Christian Fellowship doesn't belong to me, nor to Pastor Joey, nor to the elders, nor to the deacons. We are not owners of Cry Out Christian Fellowship. We are stewards of Cry Out Cry Out Christian Fellowship. Cry Out Christian Fellowship, the church, belongs to Jesus Christ. Someone say amen. Now notice that Paul goes from the positive to the negative, from virtues now to, to vices, to vices. Let's continue to read in verse 7. Not overbearing, not overbearing, or it might say not self-willed. In other words, must not be bossy must not be selfish. The word combines two ideas, self and delight. Now listen, an overbearing, self-willed person is one who is self-loving, self-focused, and is so preoccupied with himself that he focuses his opinions, or excuse me, that he forces, excuse me, he forces his opinions on others. So the leader is not to, Listen, the leader is not to use his leadership for selfish purposes or his own advancement, but rather, friends, use his position of leadership in a way that will be used to glorify God and to benefit and to the benefit of God's people, to the benefit of God's people. They are to be loving leaders, not dominant dictators. So question, are you self-willed? Or are you willing to die to self for the glory of God and to serve and to the service of the people of God? It's a great question. Think about that. Let's read on. He says, not quick-tempered. Not quick-tempered. In other words, must not be easily inflamed. Now, William Barclay provides an interesting, uh, some interesting insight, insight 
when he writes this. There are two Greek words for anger. There is thumos, which is the anger that, that quickly blazes up and just as quickly subsides. And there is orgilos, and it means deep-rooted, firmly established by long persistent, persistence, anger. It is not the anger of the sudden blaze, but the wrath which a man nurses to keep it warm. He goes on to say this, a blaze of anger is an unhappy thing, but this long-lived, purposely maintained anger, maintained anger is still worse. The man who nourishes his anger against any man is not fit to be an office bearer of the church. Proverbs 29.22 says this, Proverbs 29.22, an angry man stirs up dissension and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. James 1.19, James 1.19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So Paul is not just talking about a quick temper here, but also a settled state of anger, a constant simmering anger. Someone who is nourished, someone who nourishes, excuse me, someone who nourishes their anger against other people. In other words, they become bitter towards others. David Guzik said this, we don't need bitter people in positions of leadership. We need people with big, open hearts with the character and love of Jesus Christ in their leadership. I love that. I love that. Let's read on. Verse 7. Not given to drunkenness. Not given to drunkenness. Now, it was especially important in Crete for the leader to avoid drunkenness because this behavior could be confused with the drunken worship of the Greek god Dionysius which involved drunkenness and immor 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 immorality and was widely practiced, widely practiced by Cretans. Now listen, the leader should not be under the power of alcohol. Got it? The leader should not be under the power of alcohol. Now I understand that Paul didn't write that it was forbidden for the leader to drink alcohol. I realize, okay, I get that. I realize there's no verse, no biblical command that says that Christian leaders, Christian leaders are to completely abstain from alcohol. But there are a lot of biblical and practical wisdom in Christian leaders abstaining from alcohol. Listen, church, it's a reflection of biblical wisdom for a pastor, elder, or deacon, or leader to abstain from drinking alcohol. I want to tell you, the Bible frequently shows us how, how, how usage of alcohol can turn a godly man into one who loses control, loses clarity, and even consciousness. Also, that using alcohol impairs your ability to think logically, to make decisions rightly, and to hear from God, from, from God clearly. These are abilities, listen now, which... Church leaders must possess at all times. Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5 says, It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Listen, the best way to avoid drunkenness is to not drink at all. And you've heard me say this many times. 
A Japanese proverb warns, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes a man. And by the way, as pastors, elders, and deacons here at Cryo Christian Fellowship, we abstain from alcohol. Okay? It's the best thing, the right thing, it's the wise thing. Now, I know that in some churches, they allow their leaders to drink, and that's their prerogative. That's their church. But here at Cryo, we ask our leaders, our pastors, elders, and deacons to abstain from alcohol. We want to be a good example to those around us. Then he says this, not violent, not violent. In other words, must not be a striker or a fighter. Listen, it was, it was not uncommon in the first century for men to settle their disputes uh, with, with their fists. They would duke it out. That's the way they would settle their disputes. They would just duke it out. Now, this also includes those who were violent in their speech, those who were verbally abusive. So this elder, pastor, overseer must not be violent, must not be verbally abusive. Then he goes on to write, not pursuing dishonest gain. Not pursuing dishonest gain. In other words, not greedy for money. Must not love, this is now, must not love, this leader must not love money more than ministry. Got it? He must not love money more than ministry. An elder, listen now, must not be involved in dishonest practices for selfish purposes. And you see, if the leader is so in love with money, if he is so in love with money, it becomes a distraction and also corruption of his spiritual service to the church, to the body. In fact, the Cretans were notorious for being fond of sleazy gain. Uh, Plutarch, uh, the Greek philosopher, said this, that the Cretans stuck to money like bees to honey. In fact, friends, in that culture, much like ours today, material gain was counted above honesty and honor. Well, what Paul does, Paul identified false teachers in verse 11 of chapter 1 as those who teach for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, what Paul does is he brings us back to the positive, to the virtues. So he goes from the vices now to back to the virtues. And that's now brings us now to verse 8. Look at verse 8. Rather, he must be hospitable. Hospitable. That simply means stranger loving. Write that down. Stranger loving. The elder must be one who is fond of being a friend to those in need. Now, friends, on the island of Crete, it was imperative for believers to offer hospitality because of the persecution that took place, leaving many Christians homeless. You see, when they got saved in, on the island of Crete, many, many of them lost their jobs because they were believers. So they needed help. So the elder delights to share what he has with others. And that in sharing, he furthers the ministry. Maybe it's a meal, maybe clothing, maybe even a bed. So he must be hospitable. Then he goes on to say, one who loves what is good. One who loves what is good. In other words, one who spends time with things that are good. One, listen now, who loves things that are worthy. 
Now, I want to say this. Elders must not only love what is good, but also be examples of good. In fact, in chapter 2 of Titus, chapter 2 of Titus, verses 7 through 8, says this, And everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So he must be one who loves what is good. Then he goes on to say, who is self-controlled. Self-controlled. It might even be rendered as sober-minded. Sober-minded. And and this quality refers to being level-headed and sensible, okay, uh, of one who is temperate, one who is temperate. Warren Wiersbe said this, he is one who knows how to be serious when the occasion requires someone to be serious. He knows the value of things and he doesn't cheapen the ministry of the gospel message by foolish behavior. I love that. Now, friends, this characteristic leadership quality is so important that Paul uses it 10 times in his letter to Timothy and to Titus. So he must be sober-minded, self-controlled. Then he goes on to say upright. It might be rendered just. He should be, in other words, a man of integrity, that this man practices what he preaches. In other words, he has a right standing with others. Got it? He has a right standing with others. Then he says, holy. Say holy. Holy. Now, the root meaning of holy is to be set apart. Listen now, to be different. To be different. An elder, listen now, is to be progressively growing in his holiness as one who's striving to be more like Jesus. He's different than the world. Striving to be more like Jesus. In fact, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.16, he says, Be holy because I am holy. And he was quoting what God said in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. Be holy because I am holy. And I want you to get this. I want you to get this. Godliness will reflect itself in a holy walk. Godliness will reflect itself in a holy walk. Walk. Now, if you're loving this, say amen. Say amen. If you're still with me, say amen. Then he goes on to say, and disciplined. And disciplined. Now, this word is related to self-control. Self-control. And focuses on one who is able, listen now, who is able to say no to that which is wrong. Able to say no to that which is wrong. Wrong. And by the way, the last manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23 is what? What is it? It's self-control. Now, I want you to say just. Come on, say just. Say holy. And say self-control. Just, holy, and self-control. I want you to follow me here. A pastor, an elder, a bishop, overseer, leader must be just. In other words, right towards men, must be holy, in other words, right towards God, and must be self-controlled. In other words, right towards himself. 
right towards men, right towards God, and right towards himself. If you got it, say amen. So the commission, the characteristics, and point number three is the commitment. Say that, the commitment. These leaders, these elders, these bishops, these overseers, these pastors, they're committed to the message of God. They're committed to the word of God. Look at verse 9a. He must hold firmly, say hold firmly, to the trustworthy message. It's not just a message, but it's a trustworthy message. Don't you love this? As it has been taught. Now the phrase, excuse me, the phrase hold firmly has the sense of cleaving or clinging, clinging or adhering to something as if glued to it. Listen, godly leaders, gotta get this, godly leaders must be glued to God's word. God's word. He's never gonna let it go. Never gonna let go of God's faithful word that he has been taught. And friends, he's, he's sure, uh, so sure, he's sure of the faithful word for himself. So when he brings the word of God to the people, he brings it with confidence and authority and not mixed with his own opinions. He's a man of the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles or divides the word of truth. There's a lesson here, an awesome lesson here, and here's the lesson. Cling to the word of God. Say that. Cling to to the word of God. I love that. We can cling to God's word. Why? Because it's a trustworthy message. Psalm 111, verse 7. Psalm 111, verse 7 says, The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. Listen, friends, if there's ever a day that we need to cling to the word of God, it's a day in which we live. It's today. The world around us is going to try to pull us away from God's word. Listen, today's culture wants to pull the word of God out of our hands, out of our hearts, friends. They, they want us to doubt God's word. They want us to believe that God's word is full of errors. But I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you that God's word is inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, authoritative, and will do what it says. It will do what it says it will do. So, so cling to it. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. It's the word of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but only the word of God will stand forever. Look at verse 9b. 9b so that he can encourage or exhort others by what? Sound doctrine. There's that word again, sound doctrine. Hey, doctrine matters. And refutes and refute those who oppose it. So elders, pastors, overseers, 
are to hold firmly to the faithful word so that they are able to encourage or exhort believers with the word of God. They do that by teaching sound doctrine. And refute false teachers who spread falsehood. And they do that by defending sound doctrine. Friends, elders must, listen now, elders must be declarers and defenders of God's word as they lead and feed God's people. Luther said this, a preacher must be both soldier and shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach. He must have teeth, love this, teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and fight. Friends, that's a true shepherd. True shepherd, a soldier and shepherd. Now listen, since the church is built upon the word of God, leaders must devote themselves to the study and the teaching of God's word. Nothing must be allowed to take the place of this central priority. Now I got to say, whenever Dan, Brother Gill, my son Julian, Pastor Joey, or myself, whenever we teach and preach, we are teaching you and preaching you the very word of God, sound doctrine. And I take pride in that. That's the good pride. Take pride in that, that we preach and teach the written word of God. So as we wrap this up, the takeaways, what are the takeaways from this message? Well, I'm going to give you about four of them. And the first one is this. Use this list, these characteristics, this list, as a maturity profile in your own life. I'm going to say it again. Use this list as a maturity profile in your own life. Now, while these qualifications apply to elders and pastors and, and bishops, overseers, these qualities can help all of us measure our own maturity level. So I want to remind you, this message is not just for leaders, but for you as well. The second thing is this, respect your leaders. Respect your leaders. Our culture, if you haven't noticed by now, our, cult, our culture doesn't really respect those who provide leadership. But in the church, in the church, it must be different. In fact, I want you to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. I don't have time to read it to you, but it talks about how Paul says to respect your leaders. So that being said, question, what can you do to affirm your leaders today? Huh? And thank them for what they do. So use this, uh, use this list as a maturity profile in your own life Respect your leaders. The third thing is this. Submit to your leaders. Don't just respect them, but submit to your leaders. Submit to your leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Have confidence in your leaders and submit, there's that word, submit to their authority. That's what he says. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. So we'll be accountable for that. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And finally, the fourth takeaway is pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. 
One of the most important things, friends, you can do is to pray for your pastors, elders, and deacons, and even the staff of this church. And Paul summed it up in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, where he says, Brothers, pray for us. We need your prayers. Amen? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for these character qualities that are are valuable for us, clear indicators that help us measure our own spiritual maturity level and that help us to be godly. And Father, might we continue to grow in your word and, and cling to it that nothing or no one can pull it out of our hands and our hearts. And Father, I pray for our leaders here at Cry Out Christian Fellowship. Watch over them, protect them, guide them, strengthen them, empower them, encourage them, give them wisdom, and bless them. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone say amen. Now, before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity, if you have not done so yet, to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life to be your personal Lord and Savior. And if that's you, you got to admit that you're a sinner, acknowledge that you need a substitute, and accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Romans 10, 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will, not might, you will be saved. So that's you. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and, and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. I confess with my mouth that you are the risen Lord, that you are Lord and believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, justified, satisfied, purchased by the blood of Jesus. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me today. And I will serve you and live for you from this day forth until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, we would love to hear from you. If you prayed that prayer to follow Jesus, we would love to hear from you. And uh, so you can contact us. If you made, said that prayer, you can con uh, email us, excuse me, email us at contact at cryout.org. Again, that's contact at cryout.org. So I hope you enjoyed the message. God bless you all. Love you all. Miss you. Have a wonderful day and see you next week.